Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 357, Walter Mapp's Courtly Trifles. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Luke, Thomas, and Susan for signing up already. The early 11th century was an unlikely time for heroes. And by heroes, I unfortunately don't mean people of good character or brave deeds. Instead, I mean people who perform extraordinary feats for their time. And one of these people was the very first King of Wales, Gruffith Ap Thuellen. He pulled off what no other Welsh ruler had pulled off before. And of course, we know very little about how he came to do it. The early years of King Gruffith have very few surviving documents. And as for his earliest years, we just have one that was written by a man named Walter Mapp. Walter Mapp was a 12th century Welshman who came from the border region between England and Wales. And his last name, Mapp, was likely a nickname given to him by his English friends. Because Mapp was derived from the Welsh term Ap, which means son of. So if we assume his dad's name was Rodri, he would have said, my name is Walter Ap Rodri. And it looks like his English-speaking friends just started shortening that down to Walter Mapp. And throughout his life, Walter steadily rose in prominence. He served the Bishop of Herodford in London, and later he served in the court of King Henry II. And the fact that he spent so much time working in the English halls of power could account for why he describes the Welsh as his compatriots but is also rather harsh in his written assessment of them. Now, Walter was fairly well known in his day, thanks in no small part to his proximity to figures like King Henry II. But interestingly, he continued to be moderately well known all throughout the preceding centuries as the author of scurrilous poetry and French romances. And not just any romance. Walter was listed as the author of the prose Lancelot, which is one of the sources for the quest for the Holy Grail, the Lancelot-Guinevere-Arthur love triangle, and that whole thing where Arthur and Mordred killed each other. Now, some later scholars have pointed out that there are troubles with this attribution, and that Walter might not have been the true author for that document. But for the longest time, that was what he was known for. However, by about the 19th century, he suddenly gained attention for a piece of writing that had been mostly ignored until that point and it was a document that he definitely did write. It was called Of the Trifles of Courtiers, and in many cases, it really was what it said on the tin. You see, as Walter continued to rise in his station, he also rose in wealth. Lands were gifted to him by powerful English figures, including by King Henry II himself, and eventually, he acquired a rather large household staff. And in this document... Walter recorded the rumors and gossip that his staff were discussing during and after their duties had been handled. Which means that Walter is providing us with a collection of the various stories and conversations that were swirling around the halls of the powerful. And this makes it simultaneously a very good surviving document and also a very bad one. I mean, on the one hand, this is a surprisingly intimate look into the social world of a medieval court. 
especially when you put it next to most of our other sources, which are basically legal contracts and a timeline. But on the other hand, it includes things like the first known account of a vampire in England. Yeah, there are vampires in this, and I'm not going to leave you hanging. Here's how his story goes. Walter's boss, the Bishop of Hereford, was going about his business when he was approached by an English knight named William Lawden. Now, this knight had come to the bishop for help on a very serious spiritual matter. You see, recently in the knight's village, a wicked Welshman had died, and the town buried him as you're supposed to do. But every evening, this Welshman kept coming back to life. And that was unsettling enough. But every night he did this, he would also choose a villager and call out their name three times. Whoever he summoned would then fall ill and die within three days. This had been going on so long that the village was now getting pretty short on villagers, so the knight begged the Bishop of Hereford to tell him what to do. And the bishop told the knight to dig up the evil Welshman, cut off his head with a spade, sprinkle holy water over the body in the grave, and then rebury him. Thankful for a plan, Knight William went back and did as the bishop suggested. But it didn't work. The Welsh vampire kept summoning villagers every night. And now, they really were running out of villagers. And eventually, the Welshman crawled out of his grave one night, and, as there weren't many villagers on hand, he called William's name three times. The knight came as summoned. But he was a knight. He was strong and brave, and when he came before the undead Welshman, he drew his sword and he charged. Shocked, the, let's call him what he was, vampire, fled through the village with the enraged knight chasing after him. William cornered the Welshman at his grave and then leapt on the monster and beheaded it with his sword. And then, at last, the village was safe. So goes the first record of a British vampire. But Walter Mapp and apparently his servants had extensive interests. For example, they were also quite interested in stories that had to do with ghosts. In another unlucky village, there was a man who died in an unchristian manner. For a month or so after, he wandered the village in his death shroud. And he did this day and night. Eventually, the villagers got sick of staring at this thing. And so they gathered together and they chased the ghost into an orchard and trapped him there for three days. While the ghost was trapped, the Bishop of Worcester ordered the villagers to put a cross on the man's grave, which they did. Eventually, the undead man escaped his orchard prison and he tried to return to his grave, but upon seeing the cross, he ran away. The villagers saw this and they got an idea. They removed the cross from the grave and waited for the ghost to return. Presumably exhausted after being up for days, the ghost did return and he sank back into the grave and the earth closed in over him. The villagers quickly put the cross back on top of the grave and the ghost finally stayed put from that day forward. But Britain's battle with the other side didn't stop there. The undead were cropping up in Northumbria too. Walter tells us of a Northumbrian knight being haunted by some sort of demon. It was dressed in a ragged death shroud and it appeared to the knight at his home. And the knight, you know, being a knight, attacked this devil, driving it from his threshold. But right as the knight was about to run the demon through, he heard his father's voice come from it. 
Dearest son, fear not. I am your father, and I bring you no ill. But call the priest, and you shall learn the reason of my coming. The knight did as commanded, and the priest arrived. But the priest didn't come alone. You see, this was before Netflix, so entertainment was few and far between. And there was a f***ing ghost in town. So naturally, the whole village arrived to watch the show. But the ghost didn't care about the crowd. He only wanted to see the priest. And when the holy man arrived, the apparition fell at his feet. He begged for forgiveness, saying, I am that wretch whom long since you excommunicated unnamed with many more for unrighteous withholding of tithes. But the common prayers of the church and the alms of the faithful have, by God's grace, so helped me that I am permitted to ask for absolution. Apparently, the guy had been a bit stingy towards the church during his life, but things have been worked out in the years since. Knowing this, the priest absolved the restless spirit, and, relieved of his torment, the ghost made his way back to his grave, with all the villagers right behind him, probably commenting on how this was the best evening they'd had in years. Once the spirit arrived at his grave, he sank into the earth, and the ground closed over him. These stories of Walters are great, and they keep coming, and some of them are even from the continent. He tells us of one from the time of Charlemagne. There was a knight in the king's army who died at Pamplona, and according to his last will, he left his possessions to a cleric with instructions that the holy man was to distribute all of it to the poor. And the cleric did as he was asked, except for one possession. The knight had a horse, a really good horse, the best horse in Charlemagne's army, in fact. And the cleric liked that horse. So he kept him. And one night, the knight appeared to the cleric, and he ordered him to give the horse to the poor. The cleric just shrugged the vision off, probably just a weird dream. And the next day, he set about enjoying his new fancy horse. But the next evening, the knight appeared again. The horse was to go to the poor. And once again, the cleric paid this ghost no mind. What would the poor do with a fancy warhorse anyway? Then, on the third evening, the ghost returned. And this time he was more urgent, and he tried to warn the cleric. But this ghost clearly didn't get it. This horse was great. And the cleric wasn't just gonna give it away to the stupid poor, obviously. In fact, it was stupid to even ask. The fourth time the ghost appeared, he was out of warnings. Instead, he woke the cleric and said, Thou art now judged, and the Lord hath hardened thy heart against repentance. And whereas thou have trifled with his long suffering, hast not heeded warnings, and hast proudly refused to honor God, thou shalt, on the third day after this, be caught up alive by devils into the air at the third hour. Well, that made the cleric a little nervous nervous enough that he actually told people about it, and eventually the word of the curse reached the ears of the king. And Charlemagne wasn't going to let a holy man die at the hands of devils just because some stupid ghost wanted to waste an awesome horse on the poor. So Charlemagne gathered his whole army, and they surrounded the cleric armed with their weapons. And supporting the army, the clergy had also gathered and surrounded the cleric armed with crosses, reliquaries, and candles. And together, they awaited the appointed hour, ready to defend their brother against this pushy ghost and his devils. 
Suddenly, there was a cacophonous howling, and the army and the clergy got ready to bust some ghosts. But they could only watch as the cleric was raised up into the air and out into the sky. He was later found three days' march away, with every limb of his body shattered. And they don't say what happened to the horse, but given the nature of French cuisine, I can make some guesses. So these are just a couple of the stories that appear in the account of Walter Mapp. So you're probably wondering, why do historians give any weight at all to this guy who was writing about vampires and ghosts, and who was best known for writing romance stories? Well, because this isn't the only thing that Walter Mapp was writing about. And while the courtly trifles include things that are trifling, this document also includes other material that is as much a cultural record as it is a factual one. And obviously, we're not going to take courtly gossip at face value when it comes to scary stories to tell in the dark. But there are other rumors that Walter relates that contain details about courtly life. And these accounts in particular have a fairly decent handle on the dangers of noble life, especially since those stories would have been much easier to verify or disprove. Which brings us to his account of Griffith ap Fluellen, before he was king. According to Walter, the scuttlebutt around court was that when Gruffith was young, he was a couch potato. The document literally says that he was, quote, lazy and sluggish and sat amongst the ashes of his father's hearth, a good-for-nothing and feeble creature who never went out, end quote. Ouch. And his attitude was apparently so bad that Griffith's sister, who no other accounts mention, scolded him for bringing shame upon the family. And hitting her breaking point, she told him to shape up and start acting like the heir to the kingdom because one day King Llewellyn would die and it would be his duty to rule. And she wanted him to start shaping up tonight. You see, it was the first night of the new year, and traditionally, young noblemen would use this night to undertake one of three traditional tasks, and their success would set the tone for the coming year. Griffith's sister reminded the young nobleman of Justinus, who raided the countryside and brought back plunder, and thus enjoyed a year of good fortune. There's also Galanus the Bard, who snuck into a pigsty and stole a single straw without waking any of the pigs. And thus, for the rest of the year, he was able to steal anything he wanted without getting caught. And then there is Theodosius, who secreted himself away in the house of Malarius, listening to all that they said. And that night, he heard the prophecy that he would become king. And sure enough, later that year, he ascended to the throne. So Griffith's sister begged him to go out and raid, or steal, or at the very least, eavesdrop. I mean, eavesdropping is easy, and she promised him that it would pay off dividends if he just did something on this auspicious night. Now, as is the case with the vampires and the ghosts, I don't think we can take this account completely at face value. We aren't sure that Griffith even had a sister, and even if he did, she probably just slapped him upside the head and told him to go outside. But while this exact conversation probably never happened, this story likely tells us something about the noble culture of the era and about the sort of activities a young nobleman was expected to undertake to position himself well for the fight for the throne. Because you had to fight for the Welsh throne. 
Like Scotland, there was no neat law of primogeniture that assured a simple line of succession. A potential claimant had to demonstrate their worthiness, and they had to do that in order to attract supporters and followers. So this story of Griffith's sister, which was passing through court during the time of Walter Mapp, provides an example of the sorts of things that would enhance a young nobleman's chances for success. Basically, by raiding, by showing a proficiency for stealth, or by showing cunning. And a young nobleman would advertise these skills to his personal guard, and to those he hoped would join his personal guard. Now in the Heptarchy, these people would have been called the Werod, the Warband. By this time in late Anglo-Saxon England, they were known as the Huskarls, the household servants. But in Wales, this guard was known as the Tailey. The word itself is a combination of the early Celtic words for house and army. So the Tailey were your house army, your household warriors. And right about now, my Welsh listeners are probably having an epiphany. And suddenly, those Christmas dinners are making a lot more sense. Because these days, Tailey doesn't mean the house army. It means family. And while we're not entirely sure how that shift in use happened, we can probably guess. But back in the 11th century, regardless of what you called them, making sure you were seen as a good leader by your guard and by the people who might want to serve in your guard was critical. And you might assume that demonstrating that ability would involve major military successes. After all, for us, reading these documents a thousand years later, we tend to talk about battles, especially the big ones. But for a nobleman's personal guard, it was ambushes and raids that would have been incredibly important. Because if you were a member of the Tailey, gaining the spoils of war was the primary way you made your living. And as such, you needed your leader to be able to provide you with chances to enhance your wealth while doing it safely. So if you're picking a young nobleman to attach your fortunes to, knowing who showed an aptitude for raiding and stealth would have been critical. And at the very least, you want someone who is cunning, just as the three tasks in the stories would have established. And Walter continues the tale. You see, getting called out by his sister was apparently just what Gruffith needed. Walter says that it was as if he was roused from a deep slumber. And now awakened, Gruffith discovered that he wasn't a lazy, good-for-nothing kid sitting by the fire. No, he was the very picture of nobility. He was strong, agile, quick, and ruthless. So Gruffith called his companions to him, said, watch this, crept up to a house, and placed his ear next to the wall. Inside, he heard many people including the royal cook. The cook was complaining about the stew he was making. A bit of meat kept floating to the top, and no matter how much he turned the stew, and no matter how much he pushed that chunk of meat down, it kept floating up. Then Griffith heard his father's voice, King Llewellyn. And the king told the cook that he was just like that hunk of meat, always getting pushed down, but always getting back up on top, no matter how hard people tried to stop him. Now, a normal person upon hearing this would have thought, dad needs to leave that cook alone and stop making everything about himself. Then he needs to get a good therapist. But not Griffith. Griffith thought he had heard a wonderful omen. And he was so inspired that he immediately left his father's household and began to savagely pillage his neighbors. And it's important to remember that while slavery was falling out of favor among the English elite, it wasn't done. 
and part of pillaging often involved the enslavement and sale of local people. And through Gruffith's fearsome actions, he began to increase his notoriety. And people noticed that this lazy Cinderfella had become a skilled and formidable raider. Now, of course, this didn't make him all that popular among the peasants, or the clergy, or the nobles that were governing the lands that he was raiding. But Gruffith had his eye on the throne. So he was after another demographic entirely. And he got them. Because we're told that, quote, every band of scoundrels, end quote, flocked to his service. And pretty soon, Gruffith was basically a bandit king. And we're told that he became so tyrannical and his deeds so bloody that even his own father feared him. And for good reason, because once he had the notoriety and power, Gruffith began to set his sights on his true enemies, his political rivals. Walter tells us that Gruffith was, quote, ever mindful of his own safety, end quote. And what he meant here was that Gruffith was paranoid. But is it paranoia if they really are out to get you? You see, Wales had accidentally created a circumstance where young noblemen and even noble boys were fighting their way through a Hunger Games. Seriously, they even had sponsors. And it was actually those sponsors who were often driving much of the danger and bloodshed. Here's a quote from Walter discussing the political landscape of Wales during this period. And given his position and how he was relating courtly gossip, this is an area where I think Walter has the most amount of authority and credibility. Quote, A serious cause for dissension is the habit of the Welsh princes of entrusting the education of each of their sons to a different nobleman living in their territory. If the prince happens to die, each nobleman plants and plans to enforce the succession of their own foster child and to make sure that he is preferred among the other brothers. The most frightful disturbances occur in their territories as a result, people being murdered, brothers killing each other, and even putting each other's eyes out. For as everyone knows from experience, it is very difficult to settle disputes of this sort. End quote. You see, Griffith wasn't so much paranoid as he was pretty clear-sighted as to what exactly would happen to him if he let his guard down. The culture of Welsh nobility meant that claimants murdered each other regularly. And if you didn't get that dagger in first, your chances of survival dwindled rapidly. And so Walter tells us that whenever Gruffith spotted a young nobleman who looked like he was beginning to attract a following, or looked like he had some talent for war or leadership, Gruffith always found a way to kill him, or at least maim him, so he would be ineligible for rule. And he was really good at it. So good, in fact, that pretty soon, there were few in Gwyneth who could actually contest him. And when asked about his actions and confronted with the murders, he said, I kill no one, but I blunt the horns of whales that they may not hurt their mother. See, he's not a murderer. He's just rounding out the edges of whales to make sure that everyone's safe. Not for his needs, of course, but for the good of the kingdom. You start to get the impression from Walter's account that Gruffith wasn't a good guy. And to hammer the point home, Walter tells us about Gruffith's nephew, a boy named Thliwark. Thliwark was younger than Gruffith, but he had already proven himself in the field to be an effective leader. And even worse, the boy was intelligent, muscular, tall, and gorgeous. Exactly the kind of noble that Gruffith feared. 
So, adopting the tone of a kindly uncle taking an interest in his nephew, Gruffith sent messengers asking for the boy to come visit. The young man didn't respond. Gruffith then tried flattery, praising Hlewark on his many good qualities, including how handsome he was. And that, too, got no response. In fact, no matter what he did, Gruffith couldn't lure this boy into the open so he could, you know, blunt his horn. This went on for ages, but Gwyneth wasn't that large of a kingdom, and Hlewark wasn't exactly hard to spot. So eventually, luck was on his side, and the bandit prince finally came face to face with his target. But unfortunately, they weren't in a place where Gruffith could get the job done. So he needed to find a way to get Hlewark somewhere private. So approaching the boy, Gruffith once again adopted the kindly uncle tone, and asked, Tell me, my dear one, why you should fly me, who is the most surest of refuges for you and yours. And you can practically see Hlewark's eyes roll at this obvious lie. But Gruffith pressed on, insisting that his nephew was only hurting himself and his family by refusing to come to his estate. In fact, Gruffith was most concerned that Hlewark was shaming himself by avoiding such a loving relative like himself. But, always eager to be the bigger person, he was willing to overlook that and welcome him to his estate anyway. And as a token of good faith, he'd even provide his nephew with any hostages he required to guarantee his safety. So Hlewark eyed his uncle, and he told him that he did have some hostages in mind. The first is Hole. I'm sure you remember him, uncle. He was the one who was working for you, but you had him smothered to death when he was out on an errand. The second I'd like is Rotherick. Do you remember Rotherick? He was the guy that you embraced with a kiss and then stabbed in the back with your dagger. I'd also like Theodosius, but I think he's going to be hard to find since you knocked him off that cliff and onto jagged rocks. And finally, I named Malin, and I think you know where I'm going with this. He was your own nephew, just like me, and you seized him through trickery and left him to die in your dungeon. And now Fluark was on a roll, so he just kept on naming off people that his uncle had killed and the manner in which he did it, and one after another, naming each of them as a hostage knowing that none of them can actually serve in that capacity. Now, unfortunately, Walter doesn't tell us what happened to Hlewark after he delivered the best response to gaslighting I've ever read. But considering that Gruffith did end up becoming king of all of Wales, that story probably doesn't have a happy ending. That is, if that story happened at all. Which it probably didn't. So, why share it? Because what Walter was writing wasn't a precise chronological account of history. He was recording the gossip and rumors that were floating around court. So while this account gives us every reason to distrust the details, the culture it relates should be given attention. It's very likely that the environment these stories describe and the customs they relate to are probably a lot more reliable than the specific facts of the account. The truth is that early Welsh rulers often waded through rivers of blood before they took the crown. So while we have no other record mentioning Gruffith having a sister, and while Walter's account feels like it's ripped from the pages of Aesop, it is entirely likely that raiding was part of how Gruffith demonstrated his worthiness to rule. 
Furthermore, his description of the dangers of fostering and how princelings would be driven to murder each other by their powerful patrons is entirely keeping with the political situation of Wales at the time. And it's also quite likely that Griffith did murder numerous rivals on his way to the throne. So even though Walter really leans into the Halloween season, he does give us a rare glimpse into courtly life during a very murky period of history. And it looks like it was just as scary, if not more so, than chasing a vampire through your village. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to help us continue to give you incredibly rare but entertaining accounts of history, you can sign up for membership by going to thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>